The next case is number 23-1229, Unest Holdings Incorporated v. Ascensus College Savings Record Keeping Services, LLC. At this time, would counsel for the appellant please introduce himself on the record to begin. Good morning, Chief Judge Barron, Judge Lynch, and Judge Howard. May it please the Court, Joseph Farside for the plaintiff, Unest Holdings. Before you begin, let me just make sure we've got audio. Judge Howard, can you hear us? Yes. And Judge Lynch? Yes. Okay, great. Okay, apologize for the delay. Please start. Thank you, Your Honors. If I may, I'd like to reserve two minutes for rebuttal. You may. Thank you. Unest comes to this Court today with clean hands and seeks just two things. In order finding that the District Court abused its discretion in denying the motion to vacate without a hearing, based on the facts alleged by Unest, and after the District Court specifically indicated it did not view a hearing as valuable to it, as well as an order remanding the matter to the District Court so that such hearing can finally be held. This is the same relief that this Court afforded to the movement in the U.S. v. Baugh's case, and that relief is all that we seek here. It is clear from... Counsel. Yes, Your Honor. From my point of view, the first question to address is whether the District Court was correct that this is not a Rule 60b-6 question, but is a Rule 60b-3 question. Do you agree? Your Honor, we contend that the District Court abused its discretion by not considering our motion under Rule 60b-6, and further, that there might be... That question required a yes or no answer. I take it your answer is yes. You did get a hearing and argument and briefing on that issue, did you not? Your Honor, we did not get full briefing specifically on the issue of b-3 v. b-6, and we contended all along that b-6 and b-3 were not mutually exclusive. Excuse me. Yes, Your Honor. You started by saying there was an abuse of discretion because there was no hearing. I believe there was a hearing on the 60b-6 question. There was a hearing, but it was not an evidentiary hearing, Your Honor. I see. It's your contention that on a decision as to whether a motion is a 60b-3 or a 60b-6, it is an evidentiary hearing that is required? You didn't request one, did you, at that point? Well, Your Honor, it was at the very first hearing following the briefing. Just answer the question, yes or no. We indicated in our briefing papers that our client was present and willing to testify at that hearing, and then the court indicated to us, Your Honor, that the court did not view a hearing as necessary, an evidentiary hearing as necessary. On the 60b-3 v. 60b-6, yes or no? I do not believe an evidentiary hearing is necessary on the specific issue of determining Rule 60b-3, whether relief is available under either or both of those. All right. So now the second question is, was the court correct in finding that despite numerous opportunities, you did not provide any evidence, although you did provide argument, 
on the 60B3 question that there had been fraud or misrepresentation. Okay. So that's the question now before you. And as I understand it, your only argument is the district court was required to hold an evidentiary hearing. Our argument... You are not contesting the fact that you did not produce such evidence. We are contesting that, Your Honor. The evidence is contained in four summaries. One is the census press release announcing its own application, which contained numerous admissions. The other is the January 2020 preliminary injunction hearing transcript in which the false statement we claim is the basis of the fraud inducing the settlement was made in open court before Judge Smith. Our May 2021 complaint, which alleged facts that postdated the settlement agreement and also included specific allegations, approximately a dozen of them, explaining the fraud that occurred and how we, UNEST, was induced to enter the settlement as a result of it. And the district court itself acknowledged in the hearing in November of 2022 that the categorical statement made by UNEST, quote, took all the air out of the plaintiff's sail in the case. And the reason I bring that up is because... Okay. As to each of those, the district court reviewed each of those and said that doesn't meet your burden of showing fraud or misrepresentation. As I understand it, you're arguing those are necessary inferences that must be drawn from those particular allegations that you have made and the fact of the statement that you say induced the settlement. That's correct, Your Honor. All right. Why? Why are those necessary inferences? And then secondly, why would that meet your burden? The standard across all of the cases, it's a two-step standard. The first step is you must take the allegations of the movement as true. The second step is if when taken as true, those allegations would lead to relief, if proven, then an evidentiary hearing must be convened to evaluate those allegations. And... Can I just stop you? Yes. The predicate step, do you agree you have to request the hearing? No, we don't, Your Honor. And you think that there is an obligation, even in the absence of request, to hold one? Yes, Your Honor. What's your precedent for that? There's no precedent that indicates a party must request an evidentiary hearing. My question is what precedent indicates that the district court must hold one sui sponte when there is no request? Thank you, Your Honor. The first source is the Barrett-Echeverria case. Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that. The new counsel in that case had filed a Rule 60b-6 motion based on alleged jury taint, which relied only upon hearsay upon hearsay and rumors. Your Honor wrote a dissent in that opinion that questioned some of the decision-making of the panel. The court nonetheless remanded a case with hearsay upon hearsay and rumors with instructions to the district court to hold an evidentiary hearing. Now, it just so happened 
that in that case, the movement had requested the hearing, but that's not why that decision was remanded for a hearing. But I'm still looking for a case that says a district court is obliged to hold a hearing in the absence of a request. Let's look then to Boss, First Circuit, 1987. The district court abused its discretion by denying the motion for relief under Rule 60b-6 without holding an evidentiary hearing where the facts alleged by the movement, if proven, would justify relief. Was there a request for a hearing there? It's unclear to me, Your Honor. That doesn't help you. The case didn't. That doesn't help you. You need a case. If your position is that even though you didn't request it, they're obliged to hold it, I would think there would need to be some authority to suggest that. I had thought you were making a different argument, which is that you were told the request would be denied, and therefore you didn't need to make it because the district court made it clear he was going to deny it. I thought you had made that argument. Well, I'm making both arguments, Your Honor. I think both are at play here today. And certainly standing before Judge Smith and hearing from Judge Smith that he seemed to think our allegations were of – And now you're making that second argument. Correct. Okay. With respect to the second argument, what – it depends on, I think, the district court saying, I won't hold an evidentiary hearing. But as I read the transcript, that's not what the district court said. I beg to differ, Your Honor, respectfully. I need to put this on the record, if you will. The court said, actually, I think rather than an evidentiary hearing, what I'm really wondering is why we shouldn't simply open up discovery in the new case, get all the discovery done. And one answer to that would be you shouldn't do that. I'd like an evidentiary hearing. But you didn't say that. I have to differ on that as well, Your Honor. When a judge says he thinks something different should happen, and frankly what he was suggesting was in my client's favor at that point in time, and we had told him in response that we had witnesses in the courtroom ready to testify, and he said we don't need to do that, at that point I did not feel very empowered then to say, well, Judge, we disagree. We shouldn't open up all this discovery, and instead we should hold a narrow evidentiary hearing on this Rule 60B6 motion. Well, you could have just said in the alternative, if you'd like to do that, I'd like to preserve that I'd like an evidentiary hearing if you're not going to hold, if you're not going to go down that route. But you didn't do that. Constructively, we did that, Your Honor. I'll explain that. I indicated to the court that we had our CEO in the gallery and that she came from California that day prepared to testify. And even with that knowledge, the court said, no, I don't think it's necessary. Let's open this up for discovery. The only issue that was briefed thereafter, we also take issue with the court claiming we didn't raise it in supplemental briefing. The court had admonished us at that hearing. May I finish, Your Honor? Thank you. The court had admonished us to brief a very narrow tolling issue with respect to 60B3 and said to us, keep it short, counsel. So there was no perceived opportunity there to append evidence, nor from the hearing did there seem to be a need. The court seemed to accept our allegations as sufficient to warrant relief if proven. And therefore, we contest we should have had a hearing. Yes, Your Honor. I thought I heard you say in the last bit that the judge was making remarks that were in your client's interest, in your client's favor. Correct, Your Honor. That was part of your reason for not requesting a hearing? Absolutely, Your Honor. Well, that's a waiver of a hearing. 
we were taking the judge's statement that a hearing would not be necessary as his decision that a hearing would not be necessary on the on the Rule 60b-6 issue. Um, last question is, with respect to this issue of whether a hearing was requested, is that equally relevant to 60b-6 and 60b-3? It sounds from your cases that it is, so that if that if there had to be a request for a hearing, and I understand you say there didn't have to be, but if there had to be one and none was made, we wouldn't have to get into the 60B3, 60B6 issue, would we? Because you'd lose either way? That's okay. correct. Okay. Thank, you. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. At this time, would uh, Counsel for Census College Savings please uh, introduce himself on the record? Thank you. Uh, good morning, Chief Judge Barron. Judge Lynch and Judge Howard, my name is Mark DeSisto, and I represent the appellee, uh, a Census College Savings Record Keeping Services, LLC. And with me is uh, Attorney Mitchell Edwards, who uh, also participated in the brief. And if I could uh, start with just one distinction here, um, and that is that, that it, it seems to me that the, the issue is misframed respectfully by my colleague. Uh, the lower court didn't say, I'm not granting your motion because you needed an evidentiary hearing and you didn't request one. What the lower court said simply is you didn't support that which you said. You didn't support the uh, uh, allegation or the claim of misrepresentation. And then the court goes on to say you could have had an evidentiary hearing. But, of course, that's not the only avenue to supporting in a motion like this that which you claim. How about an affidavit? How about some literature that points exactly to what you're saying? Yeah, but that, that sort of skips the step whether if a request for an evidentiary hearing had been made, even though what was put forward wouldn't support the claim without the hearing, did what was put forward support the basis for holding an evidentiary hearing if requested? Uh, it, well, I think we're saying the same thing because, there, in other words, there was that's, no that's support. It's framed. It's accurately framed because the contention is. Um, the I don't think you're saying the same thing at all. Um, Judge Barron has focused on the question which has been raised on appeal. The error alleged to have occurred is the failure to hold an evidentiary hearing to which the court has been asking questions about whether there actually was such a request. Okay, so perhaps you could address that. Certainly, and, and, and I apologize if I, if I uh, uh, didn't get that right. I, I think that's an easy issue. I, I think the case law, team, the Teamsters case, and another one by Judge Selly, I just can't remember it, says that you have to request it, that they, they, you can't, uh, um, uh, uh, make the argument that we needed an evidentiary hearing if you didn't request it. I hope that answers your question. If well, it doesn't, let me know. There's, there's a, what was the first and case? And the Soya case is the one that was decided. I think it was a Teamsters case. Okay, but these, the um, rejoinder that I understand your opponent to have to that, which is the wrinkle in this particular case, which you need to address. Because they say they, that's all well and good, but if the district court says, by the way, don't ask for a hearing, I'm going to deny it, 
then it would be a little odd to say, but you must request it. Okay, so obviously that's not exactly what the district court said, but they say implicitly that's what they think the district court said. So why is that wrong? So the argument that I have to make to you is that the record, that he didn't say that. If you look at the context of what the lower court said, the lower court said, you know, in the colloquy, I don't really think we need an evidentiary hearing. Maybe we should open this up for discovery. I think I responded with, I don't think we should do that because it doesn't fit in with the principle behind Rule 60B that there should be finality of the judgment and we should only do this in exceptional circumstances. Can you just explain to me what was going on in that colloquy? What did that mean, maybe we should open up to discovery? What was the district court talking about there? Prior to having an evidentiary hearing, we would just have discovery? I don't quite understand what that could have meant. Okay, so I often am, sometimes I don't know what the judge is thinking. I don't know what I'm thinking. Yes, okay. So I think what the judge was trying to say is maybe we should just open this up for discovery, period, and I didn't get that. And that's why I said, you know, when you look at 60B, you've got to look at those two bedrock principles of... So your response back was that's not really an option. Yes, I think I vociferously said, well, what's the point then? Then you've already granted the motion if we have discovery. And at that point, your opponent, as they said today, says that would be great, effectively, if we opened it up to discovery. So there's no real reason for, as they think, at that point, if that's what we're going to do, why would I request an evidentiary hearing? And you're basically agreeing at that point. But your point to us today is that doesn't mean the district court was saying that's definitely what I'm going to do. And if you ask for an evidentiary hearing, I'm going to deny it because I'm going to grant discovery. It's all just in the way judges sometimes do throwing out possibilities. Yeah, I think it's counsel's obligation to ask for an evidentiary hearing, and they didn't here. And so I want to, you know, the standard here is abuse of discretion. And I think when a lower court says there's no support for your allegation of misrepresentation, you have to be convinced that that was a clear error of judgment. I don't think you have that here. And I want to go back to one other thing, Chief Judge Lentz, that you brought up, and that is if before you get into whether or not 60B-6 applies as opposed to 60B-3, and we've made arguments in the brief, and I won't belabor it unless you have a question, that 60B-6 and 60B-3, the tenant here is that there was some misrepresentation. So the court's determination that you haven't provided any support ends that. Yes, the two issues can collapse into the court ruling that there was no evidence disposes of both issues. Yes, Your Honor. I take it that's your argument. That's the argument. And in keeping with the late part of the day, there are other arguments here, but I don't, unless you have questions, I don't think, unless you have questions, I will end. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. At this time, would an attorney for UNEST Holdings please reintroduce himself on the record to begin? Good morning, Your Honors. Jeffrey Lee for UNEST Holdings.
to begin. He has a two-minute rebuttal. Good morning once again, Your Honors. Joseph Farside for Appellant Unest Holdings. Um, the cases that I mentioned earlier, Barrett, Boss, uh, even Triangle Capital, uh, which is a 1989 Judge Wolf case, um, they use two sets of, of words that are important. One, in general, and this is a quote from Boss, the district court cannot ignore one party's uncontested allegations. The second is that, and this is set forth perhaps most clearly in Triangle Capital, that an evidentiary hearing is, quote, required. Again, none of those cases, including Barrett, turn on the issue of whether a request is made. I I want to pivot for a moment to a, a topic I didn't get to earlier, which is um, an issue of 60B3 dealing with fraud and 60B6 dealing with extraordinary circumstances. And the conundrum that my client has is it's specifically alleged it was defrauded to entering into the settlement agreement, which directly led to the judgment. There are four circuit cases that specifically state that material breach of a settlement is is a de facto extraordinary circumstance that justifies relief under 60B6. So I'm hard-pressed, and my client is really hard-pressed to understand how a fraudulently induced settlement agreement is not an extraordinary circumstance when that agreement is technically void under the law, if our allegations are proven, um, that that judgment should stand, whereas we would be better off if the appellee had simply breached the settlement, and then we'd have a, a recourse under 60B6. To leave the court as a public policy matter, this is very difficult uh, a very difficult situation where clear allegations are made with public statements in that press release that fraud was committed, and if I may finish, Your Honor, I'll be about 10 seconds, that a fraud was committed and the party waited a year and a month to reveal the fraud. We acted timely and in due course and are left without a remedy, and can we I find that just, to be unjust. Can I ask you one question on that point? Yes. Which is, if, if you were to be unsuccessful in pursuing the Rule 60 avenue. And let's say it was because there hadn't been a request for an evidentiary hearing that was determined that without that request, the district court didn't err. That would mean that in the action before Judge McElroy, which is still pending, right? That action has been uh, consolidated before Judge Smith as well. So the old case okay. and the new that, case. That The new case still pending. Correct. The concern is that would be subject to race judicata because of this Correct. judgment. But I don't know, under, under race judicata law, is the claim of fraud a possible thing that could be brought to counter the argument for race judicata in that action, or is that not a viable? Well, yes, and that's, thank you for raising this, that's how we started off Right, bringing a new that, case. I just, just say if that's true, then there's a little bit less force to the idea that you're in an unjust predicament. It's well, just a question of which procedural route by which you try and attack the judgment is the proper one. That's how we tried to attack I it. it. Yes, Your Honor. So if, if we could revert sense, to that posture. In that sense, you're no worse off than you were before you got into this. But I'd have to convince Judge McElroy to reverse her order. Right. Okay. Thank you, Judge. Thank you to the court. Thank you, counsel. That concludes argument in this case. All rise.